It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is a very interesting man. His name is David Chesky. He's an American pianist, composer, a producer, an arranger, and the co-founder of the independent audiophile label Chesky Records. He's also the co-founder and CEO of HD Tracks, an online music store that sells high-resolution digital music. And Chesky is considered a technological and music innovator with eclectic interests. David, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. You have such a, a depth of work and a body of work that's extremely extensive, incredibly interesting, and in a way, you know, I almost don't know where to start today, except maybe I'll, I'll take the liberty and ask you, uh, as the description said that you're considered a technological and music innovator with eclectic interests. What does that mean, eclectic interests? I think it, it, we can relate it to Baskin and Robbins ice cream. You have all these flavors. I can't do vanilla and chocolate and strawberry. I need blueberry, banana, and pistachio, raisin, rum raisin, and things like this. Because I just get bored doing the same thing over and over again. So if I'm playing with my jazz band, after a while I want to do symphonic music. If I'm writing an opera or symphony, I get bored of that. And I just got to, maybe it's... Uh, you know, I can't concentrate on one thing. Who knows? You know, and I think that's very reflective uh, in your work because it, it's almost like you're someone that just doesn't take bland or standard or traditional. You have to add your own taste to it or give it a little bump here and there and, and put your name and your arrangement to work. Otherwise, it sounds like you wouldn't sleep well and accept something just as it was. Yeah, it's kind of like that. But basically, I think boredom is the catalyst of everything. You're bored and you just start picking up a piece of wood and whittling. And that's kind of like it is with music. You know, you just get bored and say, what am I going to do today? I wish it could be a better philosophical answer, but that's kind of it. You have a, a wide interest and, and you have a history that allows you to do what you do because you not only have the technology, but you have the heart, the soul, and you have, I guess, an experience level that most people don't have in the music business because as you and I were talking before we started our recording, you have a lot of experience on both sides of the glass, if you will. Yeah, I mean, look, first and foremost, I'm a musician. That's the catalyst. I came to New York when I was 17 to be a musician. 
pianist, started off as a jazz pianist, then became an orchestrator for Broadway and movies. You know, I played with the, at the Newport Jazz Festival. I used to play at the Village Vanguard. Now I mostly do symphonic and operas and ballets. But the music is the driving force behind everything. And the, also to get to the technology side is being a conductor and conducting orchestras in a studio, you're in a studio. And then you start looking at microphones and tape machines and boards, and you just get curious. And I said to myself, as long as I'm going to be in this place, I'm going to learn as much as I can. And as long as I'm going to be in this place, I'm going to try to make these records or whatever I'm doing sound as good as I can. Because it's only a little bit of effort to make a good sounding record and a great sounding record. And a lot of luck, too. Well, and of course, that's the... uh I guess the basis for your starting Chesky Records, uh, you wanted it to be as pure a sound as it could be and appeal to the audiophile. Yeah, let's look at it like this. You have an Italian restaurant, you have a French restaurant, you have a pizza parlor. They're all good. A lot of people go into a studio and they use the console to create a sound and to create music. I said, I just want to have a little different bistro. And I established a philosophy from day one that I I used to be a conductor. And where I stood on the podium was the best sound in the place. And I wanted to start a label from the conductor's perspective. And that's why I said, we have two ears. We're just going to use two microphones, whether it's a stereo mic with two capsules or two spaced omnis. That's going to be our recipe for our little restaurant. And I'll tell you, people make different types of records and they're all good, but it's a different perspective. So that was the perspective of ours, to to capture real musicians in a real space and do as little processing or no processing as we can. What you see is what you get. We don't airbrush it. You know, we're taking these black and white photos with a five by seven camera and just trying to capture a moment in time. So why don't we start with the technology or the technique that you apply to your recordings, because that seems to be the hallmark of what Chesky Records is all about. And you use a human figure dummy, so to speak, or, or a human head with microphones uh, on uh, delivering input on two sets of ears, one left and right, obviously. And... What was the concept at work there in developing that? Okay, well, first of all, we didn't start there. We started with stereo, you know, all kinds of things. This process we've been doing uh, is called binaural. And it basically tries to emulate your head and your ears so the microphone hears like a person. Because a, a real microphone doesn't hear like a person. A real microphone hears 360 degrees. We ha- all have a pinna, and we hear different frequencies wherever it's coming from because nature constructed our ears like that. So what we're trying to do is scientifically recreate how the humans actually hear music. So when you hear these uh, with a filter, which was going to come out in the future, you know, it's, I don't want to get so technical, but if you hear them on headphones or this new future format, it's going to seem like you're actually in a room with the band. So if we recorded the band in the Village Vanguard, and you live in Tahiti, and you have a stereo, and you have the software to play it back later on, you're going to feel that you are in the Village Vanguard and not listening to a recording of the Village Vanguard. And we want to do virtual reality in audio. Are most of your recordings in a live setting rather than studio setting? 
they're all live, but not with an audience. Okay, we don't multi-track. It's live, two-track tape. Once in a while, we go into a place and record with an audience in a club, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they're all, in essence, live. Okay, there's no mixing, so you're always on a typewriter wire, and we hit start, and that's it. So they're live. Now we can edit. You know, if somebody blows letter A, we can say, okay, let's just do letter A and edit it in. But once that goes down, we can't change the balance. We can't change anything. If the guy plays a solo too loud, we're stuck with it. So w when you're recording, do you prefer to be in a open space like a church, a hall, or, or something that might have a different acoustical sound as opposed to the soundproof studio where you feel like you're all closed in and there isn't even air in there. Absolutely. We have to be in a beautiful space because we're recording the space as well. So we use primarily churches or big halls. If you go in there and you clap your hands and you hear it, it has a nice reverberation, we want to be there. If we go into a room with a rug and it's all dead and you know soundproof it's not going to sound good because then you need to put artificial reverb now listen i'm doing an orchestra project right now with a choir during covid and we have to do it in the studio and we have to do it one by one and then we'll put on artificial reverb because it's darwinism we just have to adapt to this situation but as soon as the veil lifts we're back in the studio with our dummy head or two microphones is there a name that you've given this dummy head? Does it have like a nickname, you know, like this is Well, Ralph? we have a few few dummy heads. The one that's made in uh, Scandinavia is Lars. We have one that's made in Germany, and he is Fritz. So we nickname them. So it depends. We just say, let's use Lars or Fritz today. And they're uh, dummy heads. And we actually make one ourselves. We can't put one together. Do you sell these by any chance or market them to other no, no, producers? No. Or is this something exclusive to Chesky Records? Well, no. I mean, test companies make this. Uh, B&K that make testing instruments use these. And primarily they're used to uh, test ambiences and factories and, you know, aircraft engines and whatever they do. They're really sensitive. And, uh, you know, but we use them for music applications. It's not only a head, it's a torso. It's, it's a kind of big thing. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference then between binaural sound and stereo? Binaural captures your pinna. Everybody has a different uh, pinna in your ear. It's like a fingerprint. And the pinna is the thing that gives you depth. Like, you know what? It's nature. If we're in the woods and you hear a, a twig break behind you, you could say 100 yards behind me to the right, a twig broke. And we have this sense, nature put it there because it's, you know, defense because it's probably a bear trying to get you, okay? So when you use an ear for surround and for spatial cues, it's much better because with a filter in this, we can put you in a three-dimensional space, which we can't uh, put you in just playing it in a microphone and a speaker. You know, it's, it's a, this is just half of the system that will be in the future. We're putting this thing together. But this is how we do it because this is how we're designed to hear as human beings, okay? Now there's a lot of technical things I don't wanna go into because it'll bore you, but in the end, it'll probably be some kind of application with a iPhone, you take a picture of your ear, it decodes the music for your ear because no two people have the same ear, like a fingerprint. So this is another thing, but 
it's a different way of looking at it. This is to put you in a virtual concert hall. If you just want to hear music, like in the back of me in a speaker, and you're listening in the background, none of this matters. But we want to take it to another level because I think the better we can capture the tone and the little nuances, it brings you there. You know, let's just take a sax player. You take a guy like, I don't know, Coltrane or, you know, Michael Brecker or somebody. They study their entire life to create this tone. And the more we can have it resolved, the more you hear what they're doing, you know. So this is what we want to do. We want to bring you like you're right in front of the stage and you're hearing these guys right in front of you with every little keypad click and all that that brings in the real human experience and that's what brings in the live experience a lot of this gets lost just on regular records but that's a good that's okay because a record has serves a different purpose and you just want to relax and hear music but like i said we want to do real virtual reality for audio what's the reaction like for artists when they come into your studio to record or into your facility and they see this uh, torso, et cetera, and maybe they haven't uh, had that experience. How do they react to that? Well, at first it takes a minute, and this is the problem. We have relied too much on technology. Guys go into record studios to make a record. Everybody's in a booth, and everybody's wearing headphones, okay? And everybody's adjusting their own volumes. And you know what? Nobody listens to each other. It's all one level, Okay. When you do it like this, if the drummer plays too loud, you're not going to hear the bass player. So all of a sudden, it puts you back into 1930, where people actually had to listen to each other live. There's no augmentation of electrical acoustic devices like this. So I find that the level of the playing kind of gets up because people are really listening. It's very nuanced playing. There's a lot of subtleties, and there's a lot of interplay. It becomes like a classical string quartet. So that's the positive side. The negative is we're so used to the crutch of this big 48-channel you know, channel console that we get lazy. We've been lazy in the last few years, and this takes a second to get through. But once they've done it, they actually kind of dig it because it, you know, it's sort of like walking a tightrope without a net. I, I would think it would be a very favorable reaction, only because I think from listening to some of this, that you get a a more pure sound rather than a processed sound. Exactly. We are going to the ultimate. You know what? I don't want to give you David Chesky's view of what an artist should sound like. I want to be a pure piece of glass and just hear the artist, okay? If I was in a studio, I'd say, let's put more echo here. Let's make this guy louder. Let's boost the bass. No, that's not what we're about. We want to be the con Studio team, the engineer, producer, want to be as passive as we can and just use very sophisticated technology to bring as close as we can the tone and the spatial cues of what we're recording. Well, and, and as you pointed out, too, I mean, this isn't how we as listeners or consumers of the music hear music. We don't hear it in, in we don't live within the studio context or that framework. We hear things differently by the sounds that are around us, as you pointed out much earlier, too, about the uh, crackle in the woods. Yes, you know what? Things only go downhill. When you're live, it's as pure as it gets. When you put a microphone up, a lot of the music is left in the studio. It doesn't even get to the microphone. And it's, the music's got to get down a wire. It's got to get through cables, capacitors, resistors, and sliders. Everything gets degraded and degraded. And, you know, it's okay for background, but it's enough for the brain to say, 
it's nice, but it's not real. You know what's a very funny thing that I always listen to? If you're, you're in front of the best hi-fi system in the world, a million-dollar system, and it sounds amazing, but it doesn't sound live. But when you're walking down the street and the windows are closed and, the, closed and there's a kid practicing the clarinet, instantaneously you know it's live. The brain just says it's live. There's no question. And that's what we have to emulate. There's a lot of things going on in there, you know, scientifically, like zero distortion and perfect phase and transients that we just can't get on recordings yet. Well, you must have people clamoring to want to record with you because your artist list is quite extensive and uh, quite renowned as well. It's, it's not just B players or people that no one has heard of, but instead, are, are these people that seek you out because of the reputation and the recordings that you have made, or is it that you go after certain artists? It's 50-50. A lot of us people call us and say, let's do a record, or we meet somebody, I know somebody, and then we reach out to people that we want to record. So it's halfway. Right now, we're in lockdown. We can't, a lot of people, we have some great projects sitting there. Some big names want, have one of these amazing projects. And we're just saying, nope, can't do anything right now. And some of the guys are a little older, so we can't even risk it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some super famous guys, but we're just saying, stay home. We'll get it to it, you know. You know, well, a good example of that is uh, not only because of COVID, but his passing of late was Jimmy Cobb. Uh, I, I always had this desire to want to be able to do a session with him and sit down one-on-one -on -one and and talk with him. I met him just before he passed away. He was appearing at Dizzy's, and uh, it, it was a treat. I, I was I was awestruck by being in his presence, considering who he was. And yet there is someone like you now who has preserved his sound forever and for all of us to enjoy. Yes, yes. Uh, we did a lot of records with Jimmy. Super nice. As good as a musician he is, he was an even more superior, nice, warm, gentleman human being. You know, nice family guy. And, you know, that's, that's how we know, you know, is, uh, the human side of Jimmy. Just an amazing person. I'm sure that through the history of some of the artists that you've worked with, it, it's been an amazing ride for you. It's been interesting. We learned a lot. And like I said, it's just, it's all, you know, the thing about jazz, I work in two worlds. I work in classical music and I work in jazz. The thing about jazz is it's all about discovery. You're in the ocean, you're looking at these waves, you get on it and you don't have a clue where it's going to take you. Classical music, you know every pretty much second what's going to happen, you know when it's going to end and all that. So it's very controlled. But the beauty of jazz, it's this free-form, extemporaneous discovery search. From millisecond to millisecond, everybody in the band is searching for something. Well, you have a rich history of being involved with a lot of music in so many ways. Uh, as a composer, what? Uh, some 50 compositions to your credit, if not more, uh, and a lot of it on the classical side, some on the jazz side, of course, and you've also uh, put out uh, recordings for kids. Uh, that is a, an element or a branch of uh, Chesky Records. Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, I have an opera running around the world now called The Mice Four, 
it teaches children the absurdity of war while exposing them to music. And I think it's very important we educate young kids about music because it, it's not happening in the schools. So we have to pick it up, you know, and I like what, you know, they're doing down the street at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And, you know, my last ballet is called the Breo Dances. And it's dedicated to Jose Abreu, who started the El Sistema. And, you know, in Venezuela, where they have political unrest and they have no money, they've managed to get all these young children off the streets and involved in music. And it's just a really wonderful thing they accomplished. So that's why I wanted to dedicate my last ballet to him. But, you know, we can use a little of that here and we need to get kids involved in music. And I'll tell you something. You know, with all the political things going on now and all this, the tragedy for me is that you go to an inner city city and you walk up to a 14-year-old kid and say, who's Charlie Parker? Who's Dizzy Gillespie? And they'll look at you like they don't have a clue. And this is unacceptable. For me, I think jazz history should be taught in the schools. I mean, Winton and those guys are trying to pick it up, but every person in the United States, this is our culture. It's not European uh, music. When you go to a concert hall and you hear an orchestra here, you're not hearing your own culture. You're hearing the culture of somebody, a king, who is sitting on the throne uh, 250 years ago, 6,000 miles away. You're hearing somebody else's culture. We need to embrace and teach our culture because America is pretty much capitalist society, but our culture is not a commodity. It is our culture. And jazz is our own indigenous art form culture. And we need to be passing this down orally and written to the next generation. Because if you go to Italy, all these little kids know all their operas because it's their culture and it should be the same here. I'd like to walk down the street. And if a kid wants to go into rap, whatever, that's his prerogative. But he still needs to know who Duke Ellington and Dizzy is and how these people are, are brilliant. And, and the sad thing for me is if you're a black intellectual, one of the fields you go into express yourself is jazz because it's a really intellectual art form. And to do it on that level of a Coltrane, you have to be brilliant and genius. And these people should be put on a pedestal and they should be taught about it. And we should know about these things, especially the kids. And you do that also on the classical side through the kids' element of uh, Chesky Records. And, and I think that's really important. Like you said, this isn't music for the king sitting on the throne, but when you bring it to street level, then all of a sudden you have their attention. Exactly. And, you know, it's, it's, it has to be preserved. It just has to be, you know, we need to know about it. You know, it's, a, it's part of this culture. It's the backbone of this culture. And we need to preserve it. You're quite an innovator when it comes to presenting not only classical music, but uh, jazz as well. Uh, you did a recording, I think it was back in 2013, uh, Jazz in the New Harmonic. And you assembled some uh, great musicians, uh, including yourself, uh, on that particular uh, session. Right. Well, Jazz in the New Harmonic is my quintet. It's a band. We, we've known each other for a long time. We have two records. We were doing our third till we got stopped. But we play at Dizzy's and we play around once in a while. Not so much, but it's amazing musicians and they're all into audio. It's Billy Drummond on drums, Peter Washington on bass. And these guys are diehard audiophiles. Javon Jackson on sax and Jeremy Pelt on trumpet. Thank you. 
and the whole point of jazz and the harmonic is to take what I know in classical music and apply it to jazz. So it's sort of like it's grooving, it's got soul, but the language we use, instead of using a minor, dominant, major type system, you know, diatonic, as in jazz, I use more of a very contemporary harmony, which is pretty based on very tight harmonic language clusters or very large intervals, which I would use in modern classical music. So we're trying to get away with this and try to push jazz forward because, you know, it's, it's about going forward as well. We just don't want to sit there and play my funny Valentine for the next 50 years. Well, and it's interesting how you, you take music that people might know and love and they expect a certain traditional sound coming out of that particular piece of music, but at the same time, you've arranged it differently or put your spin on it. And, and that's what's really great because it's, it's not the same old thing. As we talked about earlier, boredom is not a thing you want, uh, and you don't want to meet the expectation of music uh, without being diverse and make it a little uh, interesting uh, in, in a different arrangement or a different manner that has been heard before. I agree. And everybody does their thing. And like I said, uh, you know what? Some guys are happy eating cornflakes their whole life. I'm not. I need to do changes. And it's exciting to do things for the first time. And it's exciting to create these new colors and all that. Now, don't get me wrong. Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum are wonderful. They're gods. I sit there and I play stride piano in my house for fun, but I don't want to sit there and be a second-rate Oscar Peterson or Art Tatum, even though I love playing stride piano and I play it for like an hour a day. But when it comes to do my thing, I need to do what I do differently, and that's this harmonic type of add my own sense of harmony to the world of jazz. So what about yourself, David? Are you either more comfortable or have a preference for jazz versus classical music or is it the other way around or a combination of both it's both here's how i look at it i'm a classical composer as a composer in classical music with a 80 or 90 piece orchestra i tell everybody at every moment in time what to do if 20 orchestras play beethoven ninth symphony or whatever, any piece of music, it's pretty much going to be the same. Because in classical, it's a composer medium, orchestra can play a little louder, a little softer, faster, slower, etc., etc. But that's kind of it. You can, they're always the same thing. In jazz, it's a performer's medium. If you ask 20 piano players to play My Funny Valentine, you're going to get 20 pieces that have nothing to do with each other whatsoever, except that you maybe know the tune. So that's why I like to play jazz, because it's discovery. I like to write classical music. It's discovery. Now, with my piano concertos, I can't stand learning them, because then it's just learning it. I don't like to sit there and learn something all day long. I want to do something new. With jazz, it's always fresh or new. I have no clue what's going to happen. With your classical compositions uh, and the recordings that you've done and the compositions, uh, they're absolutely astounding. Uh, they're wonderful to listen to, and it, it, I think, reflects your soul, and you can hear the passion and the devotion that you have to the music, but yet it's you who's coming out through the music. Well, I hope so, because I think art is a reflection of time and culture and the person. I mean, basically, look, 
when I do music for myself. I do it because I enjoy it. I get off on it. And I just say, if I like it, I hope you like it. That's it. I don't want to write music that I know you're going to like, but I'm not going to like. The first important thing is you got to like it. And I think in jazz, that kind of goes with the thing because guys playing solos are playing solos for themselves. So I think, you know, jazz is the only type of thing where you can play a gig and then you'll go to another gig and play free all night long because they actually enjoy it. Jazz guys will be happy five guys in a room without an audience just playing for themselves all day because it's that type of thing. It's a self-expression abstract impression type of art form and the thing is you do it for yourself and then if you, the next 10 guys hate it it's okay and if the 11th guy loves it come on in tell me about the fact that you created the world's first rap symphony well that was out of boredom i said you know let me take a shot with this rap stuff and i wrote a symphony and i have rappers doing it and uh, it's a political work you know about deconstructionism of the society And it was fun and it was just blending forms. Look, my last ballet, The Braille Dancers, it's Latin, totally Latin. You know, you could dance to it. It's very complicated, but it really stems from a Latin ballroom. So the idea is I just like to take building blocks. You know, Stravinsky and Bartok took the folkloric songs they grew up in. In Russia and in Hungary, they took these things and that was their language. So I use the language I hear every day. I use jazz, I use Latin music, I use whatever I can find that I hear on the street. I say, okay, I'm taking that home. It's sort of like you're walking down the street with a pickup truck and you say, I like it, throw it in the truck, throw it in the truck and you get all this stuff and you take it home and then you build a sculpture with it. So these are the building blocks for what I use. I don't, I live in the middle of New York City. You know, it's a fast moving city and the metaphor is you don't need some philosopher to write a book. It's just get out of my face and let's get going.
So I like to reflect the city because this is it. I don't live on some beautiful lake with a cow in the Swiss Alps, relax. That is not what I'm about. I'm in the middle of New York City. And right now there's a guy out there with the garbage trucks and hitting it. And it's okay because that to me, it sounds like birds. You know, I'm so used to it. This, this is my environment. And I think jazz comes from this environment of this fast paced type of thing, you know. So, you know, I'm just trying to reflect the environment I live in. Well, and I think that's reflected in uh, your, uh, the New York rags, which seems to be uh, a reflection of your environment and where you live. Yeah, yeah, that was a fun one to do. I wanted to do a ragtime album. And it's rags, but they're classical, you know, they're swing, but the harmonic language is classical. There's a lot of fugues. And like I said, I have a lot of stuff in there. Everything I hear on the street, just take it home and let's pop them in the rags and use that to cook the dinner with. So would, would you find yourself uh, channeling your best Vivaldi at times? Or, or what? Uh, what's the inspiration? Who, I, I wish I knew. You know what? I write the best when I'm in New York City. New York City is my inspiration. When I like to go, I like to go up to the mountains. I like to ski. I like to kayak. But when I'm up there skiing and kayak, I'm not even thinking of music. As soon as I'm back in the city, it's just I want to play music. I want to write music. It, it is the catalyst for me. Is this city the craziness and the chaos is what turns me on. So you are most comfortable then in which music form or? Is it Doesn't the matter. music form you create? It's all the same. I'm as comfortable playing at Dizzy's with my jazz group as being in front of a, a, a watching my opera or ballet in Europe. It means no different to me. I believe in the Baskin Robbins theory of life. There's 34 flavors, but it's all ice cream. And that's it. And it's either tasty ice cream or not so tasty ice cream, like Ellington said, good or bad music. It's all fun. And you know what? On the weekends, I have these. Uh, gym bays and I go out to the park and I play with the African guys for a few hours. I have a great time there. And I'll tell you something. You know, you go on a stage and you see somebody play a Tchaikovsky violin concerto and you say, that's amazing. Some of these guys in the park from Africa, I sit there and I just say, how do people play these complex rhythms? They are beyond complicated to me. And they're just brilliant. And then since it's not, I guess, a rich European art form, people don't pay attention and they play with a hat. But if you really sat down there and analyzed what they're playing, it's genius. Well, music is important for all of us. And it's at the core, I think, of our lives uh, day in and day out, whether you either are fully aware of it or not. The, the point is music and beat and sound uh, make a difference in how we live and how we do things. Even, even cooking in the kitchen, there's, there's like a rhythm where you can take a spatula and hit it on the pan a couple of times. And even if you're not a percussionist or a drummer, you, you still like to pretend you got the beat going or you, you're hearing the sounds of the omelet cooking. Uh, and, and that's kind of fun. And I think all of us do that every now and then. At least I, I, I think most everybody does little things like that. Yeah, you know, the difference is this. In America, we, if we're not a musician, we kind of watch music or go to it once in a while. You know, my wife is from Brazil. We go to Brazil. In Brazil, in the, in the favelas, everybody's a musician because 
it's anchored around these things called samba schools. And music is the core of that community. Like everybody here would play tennis and golf. Everybody there is playing in this samba school. Everybody's a part of the samba school. They're play, either playing a musical instrument or designing the costumes. It's the core of their existence in Rio de Janeiro is music. I've never seen a community where it's so inbred that it's part of their, you know, the drum is basically the beating heart of Brazil. So that's the interesting thing here where they've made it uh, such an important part of their lives. So do you consider yourself more an artist, a composer, a businessman? You have this flourishing Chesky Records business. You have compositions to no end to your credit. You've played uh, as an artist uh, in, in many different forms. What comes to the surface or the top for you? Composer. That's what I do. You know, if you go to France and you go to Montmartre, you know, there's a little place on the hill and there's like hundreds of painters painting and they're artists. And as soon as you say to the guy, I like this, he puts the brush down and says, how much? He becomes a businessman. So it's just part of the thing. Everybody's a businessman trying to hustle their things, whether you're trying to hustle a symphony or a record or just calling, or if you're a sideman calling up leaders all the time, hey, what's going on? I'm free on the 22nd. You need a drummer or something like that. So it's just part of life, you know? I mean, uh, Beethoven had to sell his tickets. Berlioz, you know, had to put on the Symphony Fantastique himself. So it's just part of the game. Yeah, I wish I lived in a place where the phone would ring every day and somebody would say, David, I got you this commission, this commission, and you're going to play here. But it just doesn't work like that, so you got to do it. There's a Chinese proverb that says, if you want help, look for it at the end of your right arm. That's well said. And how would our listeners get to know you better? Uh, what could you direct them to, such as a website, et cetera, to, to learn more about you? Well, they can go to my YouTube channel. All my classical music and a lot of jazz is up there, and they can just watch the ballets. You know, the last thing these ballets were going to be done, but since of COVID, we had dancers all around the world do it. And it's very interesting because, you know, adaptation brings on innovation. So I wrote the Abreu dances to be performed by a ballet company on this stage. Obviously, that's not happening. So we're sitting around, my wife used to be a dancer, and said, you know, why don't we just call dancers and do it? And then we said, let's do it outside in the street. So one of the dances is on the beach of Rio de Janeiro. One is on the streets of uh, San Juan. One is in Sao Paulo in these crazy graffiti areas. In a million years, if there was no COVID, we would have never thought of doing ballets on the street. But they work and people are watching, thousands of people are watching and, and they're fun. So I would tell people to go to my, that site. If they want to learn more, you know, get more involved, they can visit my website, davidchesky.com. I appreciate your taking the time, David, to talk to us today. You're a fascinating man with uh, incredible talents, and this has been an enjoyable experience for myself personally, and I'm sure for our listeners, this has been time well spent. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me, and let us know if you need anything else from us, okay? Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with pianist, composer, producer, and co-founder of Chesky Records, David Chesky. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. Please join us next week for a conversation with jazz drummer, educator, and activist, Jerome Jennings. If you liked today's episode, 
please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.